I'm a big bell person. Use it freely. You'll see here that That's I do. That's fun. Bells are the best. <laughs> I use mine all the time. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie, I'm gonna get tassels on my bike immediately. <laughs> that was Angelita Morillo and I on a bike ride we did yesterday, a uh, loop through inner Southeast Portland, which also happens to be the district that she would like to represent on Portland City Council. Angelita is a candidate for district number three. That's the district that's basically all the east side south of I-84 to 82nd uh, I-205 uh, and down to basically about the Springwater, the city, uh, the southern city limits. So really important district. And she wanted to get a bike's eye view of things. Uh, she's not someone who even has a bike at this point and has really only ridden once in the city before or maybe just a few times. I didn't really know that when we set off. Uh, and things were a little shaky at the start, but she, she ended up doing a, a, a perfectly fine job on the bike. We did about six or seven miles, took her on 7th Avenue and then down in the central east side. Uh, we checked out neighborhood greenways. We crossed MLK and Grand. Uh, we went through Lad's Edition. So saw some highs and lows, sort of the good, bad, ugly kind of quick tour. And then we rode over to Happy Hour uh, where I recorded an interview with her and then I will share some Q&A from the audience. So that's what this episode is going to be all about. It's going to be Angelita Morillo and I biking first through the Inner Southeast uh, District and then uh, asking her a few questions at the at, in front of the Bike Happy Hour crowd and then hearing some questions from maybe some of you who are listening to this who happen to be at Bike Happy Hour. So anyway, I hope you enjoy the episode. And when we're on the riding portion, it probably is going to jump around just a little bit. You may not know exactly where we are, but it's not important that you know the specific infrastructure. I just more wanted you to get a sense of the back and forth and hear some of the things that we said. So hope you enjoy the episode and I'll see you on the other side. We'll keep going straight through this intersection. Have you ridden like as a kid or? So yeah, I rode my bike uh, as a kid. We grew up in Arizona, so very different terrain, I would say. You just needed like a beach bike. <laughs> because everything's so flat there. Yeah. But um, my mom never had a car and she doesn't know how to drive. So we grew up riding bikes and then taking the bus now that I moved to Portland um, when I was in middle school. But yeah, I've never learned how to ride a bike like for city riding. And I think it's very different and kind of scary. A few years ago, someone gave me a bike to ride to work, but it was from like a six foot tall man. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was slightly terrifying. That was my first experience like riding a city bike, uh, which was not smart at all. And also at the time I didn't know how to drive, so I didn't know how to anticipate how cars would move too. Right. I don't have a car. I have my permit right now. I don't have my license yet because the DMV is too busy. So I know how to drive now, but uh, okay. not officially. But still, you don't have a lot of experience driving, which as a bike rider, if you're a new bike rider, it's kind of like help. It gives you a head start because you kind of know the nature of the roads and like who's doing what and exactly. what to expect. Yeah, it is fun uh, seeing folks use this whole route in the neighborhood. Um, and it just always seems so fun in the summer. <laughs> so you, it sounds like you look at the, you look at cyclists somewhat longingly. Oh, absolutely. Like it's something oh you've been gosh. wanting to do. That's so cool. Yeah, no, I definitely want to. Um, it's honestly been like the cost of getting a bike that's been a barrier. Mm. But uh, I really need one too, just because uh, we've talked about this before, but the buses run so infrequently now, even really important lines like the 20 uh, come every 20 minutes or so. And so there's just so many situations where it's faster or not significantly different for me to just walk than mm. it is to take the bus. So I really do wish I had a bike 
for things like going to the grocery store too. <laughs> There's also huge plans to redo this whole intersection and like, we'll go right right here. And uh, this is just temporary stuff that the city plans to fill in with nicer things. It's just really ugly and very temporary looking, you yeah. know? And those little plastic posts are not gonna protect anyone from anything. Well, I was looking at some um, bike infrastructure videos from Chicago. And I think something that I saw that they do a little differently too is they will put like, you know, sidewalk, bike lane, and then there will be a patch of green in between mm -hmm. uh, so that there's like a real physical barrier. Yeah. Because the paint really does feel a little scary to, you feel kind of naked, you know? I was know? gonna ask you, like, this is one of the worst bike lanes in your district. Yeah, it is kind of scary, I don't like it. Yeah, even though speeds are relatively low, it's just really bad to have this, what we call a door zone, you know? Yeah. Like you're riding right, like that's old school, like that that could have been installed in like 19, late 1990s, right? Right. And it hasn't been changed at all. So that's really frustrating. Yeah. Because it's such a busy thoroughfare, 7th, especially with the Blumenauer Bridge going in. But yeah, you don't want to ride right next to these doors, so you end up riding out here. This feels good. This is so fun. But I thought we would go over across the big couplet to give you a sense of like how yeah. terrible that is. Like to give you a sense of the trade-offs that bike riders have to make. It's like, well, Salmon's the neighborhood greenway, mm -hmm. but it doesn't have a signal to cross Grand and MLK. So that means you're putting your life oh. at risk and you're froggering these really wild streets. Oh my gosh, I don't even like crossing that in a car. <laughs> and Taylor has a signal. Yeah. So people who know that will like maybe use Taylor because it has a signal which you like, but it's also not a greenway so it doesn't, I mean, Right, it's like a trade-off thing. Well, Instead of just having a good route, you have to choose the least of two options, you know, which is not cool. And I think those kinds of things are what stopped me from biking earlier, even though I want to, because it doesn't feel safe to bike. And even as a pedestrian, I mean, I've seen cars, like I'm on the crosswalk in a well-lit area. I'm wearing a bright blue, electric blue jacket, and some car was like, just mad, and will try to run over you to prove a point. Yeah, it doesn't take many of those things to just be like, I'm not gonna do it. Yeah. And even someone like you, who's like, would totally do it, Yeah. right? That's what I think about when you hear these conversations about, you know, cycling is on the decline or no one wants to do it. It's like, there are so many Portlanders like you. Yeah, isn't this crazy? This is terrifying. I mean, we had a good one because there was nobody coming. So we'll move over to Hawthorne. So we'll go left here to Hawthorne and you can see like a good, pretty good protected bike lane. See what, what that's all about. Back up there near the county building, there's actually like a bus island, which is awesome. Yeah. So this all the way from Grand to 12th is really really nice right this is the kind of thing like that yeah. a lot of people want like and the cars are here so you have like a physical barrier yeah. this is a nice bike lane too because i feel like this is one of the first where i've been able to ride side by side with you exactly yeah um and it doesn't feel cluttered or anything and yeah i think so many people would love it if they were i mean just picturing this in the summer like planter boxes flowers everywhere yeah it would be so pretty there's just been a lot of propaganda about bicyclists too like oh they're just annoying entitled like it's it strikes me very much as the millennial critique <laughs> um when it's like what are you talking about <laughs> i know i'm sure you hear that a lot too because yeah. you're in a lot of circles that aren't like you know bike activists i mean yeah you're in a lot of like non-supporting bike circles i should say so yeah what do you why do you think that's such a popular narrative um, I honestly just think we've had decades of propaganda around cars and car infrastructure. <laughs> I, I was talking to someone else who was telling me that they really feel like their car gives them a sense of freedom that they don't get otherwise because they feel constricted by time if they have to take the bus um, or if they have to you know, go on a bike. It's not like they can carry the same amount of things. And I was trying to explain to them that 
the reason they experience that freedom is because being in a car is prioritized by all of the infrastructure. So uh, there's a lot of people who talk about getting a bike who say they experience that same freedom of like, oh my gosh, it took me six minutes to get somewhere that would have taken me 30 minutes otherwise. Or I got to go downtown, I didn't have to worry about parking. Um, but if we don't make cities prioritize this infrastructure, then yeah, it's gonna feel harder than it has to. Yeah, and you probably, you can imagine that when someone is not just like thinking they have freedom, but they're also like sold it and, you know, billions of dollars of ads since they were babies, right? Like when they feel like it's taken away by some other, yes, they react how they react, which I think, you know, does, yeah, explains a lot of the hostility people have towards cycling and the whole yeah. idea of the city doing anything for bike, for bike riders. Yeah, people are very resistant to change. We'll go, we'll start getting, we'll start heading back. How are you feeling? Are you, <laughs> I'm huffing and puffing, but you I'm feeling good. okay? Yeah, you're good. Yeah. Like, you don't have pain or anything? <laughs> no, no. Okay. You can on a flat if you want to try to get an easier gear. But. Oh, how do I do that? How do well, I Well, you have to kind of be having some speed and pedaling oh, or shit. Okay. it won't really work. <laughs> oh no, I did the wrong thing. <laughs> okay, here. This will get me in shape real quick. <laughs> We're seeing such a small little part of your, of your district. I know. Well, we'll have to do more of these if you're up for it. Okay, this is gonna be my my tax refund purchase this year. <laughs> you decided? Yes. Awesome. Okay, I did my job. Yeah. You, no, sufficiently... this is genuinely, I'm having so much fun. Hey, Maddie. <laughs> I feel like you've waved to five people. <laughs> so there, there's Happy Hour right there. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh, this was perfect. I hope that was good. That was so fun. I had so much fun. Oh, good, good. Awesome. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna get a picture. Yeah, Post ride. <laughs> Wiping the brow, I love it. <laughs> Great. And we didn't get soaked. No, not bad. So after our ride, Angelita and I settled in at Bike Happy Hour. Of course, there was no one there right at 3 p.m., so we just had a intimate chat with just a few of the regulars who wanted to get to know her a little bit. Uh, and then after we had our food and drinks and hung out a little bit more, I grabbed the mics and did a short little interview followed by some Q&A. And before I get to that audio, uh, I'll let you know that she's going to start in here kind of abruptly. And that is my fault because I forgot to plug in the proper cables and dongles. So uh, I'm sorry about that, but I'm cutting off her initial introduction. I do regret not having her be able to introduce herself, but um, I think you'll get some important information just in this little snippet that I did capture. But beyond that, uh, here's the interview and audience Q&A. During my time at PSU, I was homeless through part of my education. And I was homeless for a little under a year. And a lot of my schoolmates didn't know that I was homeless. I did a lot of things to just maintain my schooling because being raised by a single mother, I realized that it was really important to get my education so that I could do the policy work that I wanted to do. And... My high school teachers actually ended up finding out that I was homeless for that portion of my life, and they took me in. And if it weren't for them and their family, I probably would not have graduated university, and I would not be doing policy work today. So I'm very grateful to them. I think that they taught me a lot about what it means to be in community and to love one another in a meaningful way. And that's what I want our government to become for the people of Portland. I worked at City Hall for a while. I did constituent services for former Commissioner Joanne Hardesty, and then eventually did tribal relations policy work there. And that's where I learned that people don't know who is in charge of what decisions, and they don't know which bureaus are responsible for the messes that are happening. And because of that, we aren't able to effectively organize and hold people accountable. 
So I ended up creating a TikTok to explain local government and policy to people who otherwise wouldn't be informed about these issues. And we've been able to use it as a tool to get people to testify at city council to organize around policy. Now it's around 31,000 followers and growing that are mo mostly local and talk about these issues. And I think that it, I want to change the way that governance happens to reach out to people that aren't normally talked to because I think people in city hall tend to think, People don't want to hear the messy details. They don't want to talk about policy. They don't want to hear these things. And what I found is that people love the messy details and they want to get involved. They've just never had anyone reach out to them. So I feel very passionate about all of those issues, bringing people into City Hall. And yeah, I'm just very happy well, to be here. Thanks. You are in a room full of people who love the messy details. Am I right? <laughs> right? I, I think so. I hope so. Um, when it comes to getting around in the city, can you share like your story? What's your relationship to mobility in Portland? Yeah, so being raised by a single mom, she actually never knew how to drive and we never had a car. So when I grew up in Arizona, we always rode our bikes. And then when we moved to Portland, I ended up taking the bus for everything. I was telling Jonathan that I actually, this is a little embarrassing because I am 27, but uh, I only just got my permit this past year <laughs> because I never had to get uh, a car to drive because we had good bus infrastructure. But now I have found that with the buses being so reduced and only coming every 20 minutes. It's faster to either walk to wherever I'm going or I desperately need a bike. If you guys know of a bike for someone who's five foot two, that's like around $400. That would be amazing. <laughs> Let me know. If not, I'll be using my tax return for that. But that's where I'm at. I, I really want to improve bike, pedestrian, and transit in the city because at the end of the day, I think a lot of people like me who can't afford to have a car need to find alternative modes of transportation. So on that note, is there something about your personal background that like informs how you see transportation in Portland? I think there's a narrative in Portland that biking is this like self-indulgent fun thing that people do, but I really think that transit and biking are necessities for a lot of us who grew up low income. So to me, this is a, a necessary alternative mode of transportation aside from vehicles, and that's the lens that I look at it through. I think it's, I mean, I don't have a choice in this. I need to be able to get to the grocery store and back in six minutes, and ideally on a bike it would be easier than having to wait 20 minutes for the bus. And we got a little taste of that before happy hour. I took Angelita on a little loop. I don't know, it was like, I think it was six and a half miles. Her first ride since she was 18. Yeah. We went down 7th. I showed her the new crossing at Stark. Then I showed her on Salmon, the new crossing, uh, the little diverter there at Salmon and 7th, which folks might know about. I had her cross MLK and Grand, which everybody knows about. So then we went to Central East Side to Clay. We took Clay West. Then we, I showed her the new, the, the nice protected bike lanes on Hawthorne as a potential, this is the kind of network. If we had that network mm -hmm. all over the city, you know, what would that be like? There was a bus lane there, protected bike lane. Uh, and then we went through Lads to Clinton to like 34th. We took 34th. Uh, we connected via Lincoln to the 20s bikeway and then down here to happy hour. Is there something you took away from that or something you'd want to share just from that? I don't, you, haven't been on a bike on a lot of those places, maybe ever. So yeah. what, what did you take away from that ride today? Crossing MLK was scary. Yeah, 
that's what I took away from today. Um, there were definitely some intersections where it just seems like we need to have better physical infrastructure there to make sure that people can cross safely. I think we had a lot of discussions about creating more physical barriers rather than just painting lines on the road to tell cars to drive more safely. We discussed that a lot of people who drive cars aren't necessarily, their priority isn't keeping people on bikes safe. It's going to be getting to wherever they want to get to faster. And making sure they don't chip the paint on their car. Yeah, the paint on their car is very important, more than human lives. And so therefore, we need to create (laughs) cement barriers and infrastructure to actually force people to adjust their behavior rather than just relying on people's goodwill or changing signage and painting. I also, it was interesting riding and just having cars really swish by you because I learned to drive after working with a bunch of bike advocates for years. And so I learned to drive with like a deeply paranoid mindset set of like, I'm driving this machine that is extremely heavy and dangerous, but I think a lot of us aren't taught to think that way about cars. So it was good to be on the other end of it as well. Um, You're car free. And I wonder if you can share something about your experience and you're not a regular biker yet. You will be. I will be when Um, I get my tax refund and can afford a bike. Can you say something about how bus service has changed in your time in, in using it better, worse? Like how's bus service changed over the years? Yeah, I've always loved riding the bus. I used to have to take the bus to work every day, and I get very sentimental about the bus. Like, I've seen people with their families. I've seen their kids grow up. I've seen people fall in love on the bus. So I think people have, like, horror stories about the bus. I'm a young woman, so obviously I have horror stories about existing in a public sphere. But I think that it was always something that I really deeply love. Uh, My main gripe with it right now is just that the buses come far too infrequently, and so it ends up being more efficient to just walk than it is to take the bus. And at the time when I had first injured my back as well, that was a real issue because I couldn't, I was disabled for a while, couldn't get around to where I needed to get around to. And I just think we need more frequent buses. Okay, honestly, have you ever just had the urge to just jump in a car and like (laughs) rent one or something? I mean, has it been, has there been times where you're just like, screw this, I'm going to start driving or borrow a friend's car? I mean, I have driven. I have my permit, okay? <laughs> okay. So you've driven? Yeah. You have driven. Okay. Yeah, I've sinned. Anybody drive here tonight? Be honest. That's fine. I don't want to put, I mean, Whoa. I don't want to put you on the spot. No, no shame in that at all. No shame in that at all. It happens. I, 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 it happens. It's not a thing. I mean, I have people that say I would come to bike happy hour, but I, I don't have a bike or whatever. I'm like, it's not like, there's no like, ticket to get in or you have to bike here. I was just... so anxious about that. I was like, am I a poser if I don't have a bike? Oh Can gosh. I come oh to this? Oh my gosh, that's so funny. <laughs> you, okay, so you, a lot of your work, by the way, she's running for District 3. I don't know if we mentioned that. That's this district. Inner Southeast. We have any people that are in the district that are here? This, We are in the district right now. <laughs> Yes, okay, so it's very well represented. Angelita's also, in her work, been somebody who's stood up for, did you say where you work now? You work you work for a, a nonprofit that helps people get onto SNAP, Yeah, which is I'm the a, food program, right? Mm-hmm. Just explain that. I'm a SNAP policy advocate with Partners for a Hunger-Free Oregon, so my work is to really hold the Oregon Department of Human Services accountable, make sure that they're doing okay. things right, and then pass legislation through the state legislature okay. to expand food access. And she's really, you're an activist at heart, right? I mean, if you can, one of the things I think about when I think about you is like how you hurt your back. I don't mean like, that's just a thing for me that's very illustrative of like what you've done. And I think it's important for people that are going to vote for you. And what are going to be your expectations people might have of you on City Hall? Share the story of how you hurt your back. 
So a few years ago, I'm sure we all remember the Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer were having a rally every other goddamn weekend in Portland. As an immigrant, as a woman, as a queer Latina, I obviously am not super cool with Nazis. I don't know about anyone in this room. Hopefully not. So we were organizing against them for a few years. And one year I was at a rally where I was carrying a very heavy banner. And then I had a backpack that was filled with gear. And then the police came and they tear gassed us. And obviously we were trying to run away from the tear gas. And while we were surging forward, I was carrying the heavy banner, carrying my heavy backpack. My friends grabbed onto my backpack to try to hold on to me so that we wouldn't get separated. And all of that force pulled my back and I've never really fully recovered. So I haven't been able to run again in the ways that I used to. And in some ways I think that was a blessing because I think I have a very pragmatic mind and it led me to do more policy and desk work. I think that I'm someone that's really good at bridging the activist world and the policy world, and that's part of why I created the TikTok account that I did. So I think that I'm both. I think people will assume that I just occupy an activist space, but I'm very measured and pragmatic when necessary. In your work with people that don't that make lower than the average income, right? Mm-hmm. I know that's a big part of the work that you've done, and that like I've, I've followed your TikTok account for a while, so I know that's what you talk about a lot. Can you share with us some intersections between low people that make lower wage, lower income folks, and the urgency for like transportation reform and creating a system that isn't so car centric? Are there some connections you see there, or how do you see the cause of transportation reform and more biking and transit and walking in the through the lens of it being like an anti-poverty tool or mm-hmm. something like that? I mean, I think that when we look at the neighborhoods in Portland that have been disinvested in, you're going to see that it's going to be outer southeast Portland. It's going to be the areas with predominantly black and brown communities. There's no sidewalks over there. I was telling someone else that I drove through somewhere in deep southeast the other night uh, to drop off some lawn signs, and it was just mud pothole roads the whole time the car was like. And so I think we see a lot of the pedestrian deaths that are happening are in those areas that are disinvested in. So there, there's that physical aspect of the infrastructure. I also think that, frankly, the bus raise for how much it costs to take transit was really brutal for a lot of people. That cost increase for a lot of people that are on SNAP or other things who don't know that they might have other protections is really brutal. I know it wasn't fun for me to suddenly get that cost increase. So I think there's a myth around the types of people that use transit or ride bikes. We were discussing this earlier, but it's actually low-income people that are riding bikes and using this alternative mode of transportation. And I know that growing up with a single mom, we couldn't afford a car. She couldn't learn how to drive. So That's how we got around growing up. You've also done a lot of work around people that are living outside, living on the street, Portland's homelessness problem. One of the ways that intersects with people in this room and the cycling issue is, or, or cycling in general, is when people are living on transportation routes or on bicycling routes, right? They're li- they're literally blocking, like let's say multi-use paths, like the Springwater, mm-hmm. the I-205, paths that in your district, actually, a lot of people rely on to get from point A to point B. People say they are afraid to use them or they're just physically unable to pass through them. It's been an issue that's come up here and there in the last several years. And I'm just curious how you, if you're on city council and you had a constituent saying, hey, I can't, I can no longer commute to work because I don't feel safe mm-hmm. riding on the 205 path. There's a huge encampment there, whatever. 
what, how would you respond to that? I think for me, the big focus is always going to be on long-term solutions to housing and homelessness. And I don't think that's always very popular because it doesn't produce the immediate results that people want. But the reality is that these folks don't have anywhere to go because we do not have enough shelter beds in the city of Portland. So doing repeated sweeps uh, of people and displacing them, taking away their identification, different things that help them to get employed later on is extremely dangerous. I would love to see Portland Street Response expanded 24-7 citywide and to have them answer some of those calls to make some of those negotiations of like, okay, can we keep this path clear? Can we... Having someone who is going to de-escalate the situation and find a way to work with both parties is really important. But I think that the, the city of Portland also has a lot of empty lots of land that we could convert into housing that we simply aren't doing right now. And I think that's going to be my key focus. Cool. I've lamented for a long time now that City Hall doesn't have any sort of like champions for cycling, right? So someone who's actually like putting a, a campaign on the table or, or calling a question or saying like, let's do this for cycling and that for cycling. It's been several years since we've had that. It also tracks with like a decline in cycling and sort of an erosion of cycling as a big issue in town. So number one, I'm, I'm curious if you agree with that assessment. And then if you could speak to the activists in the room or people who care about this, like how we would maybe cultivate more support at, at city council for cycling. I think that's definitely true. And I think something that I always find abhorrent about campaigns is that suddenly everyone acts like they're a hero because they're taking public transit or ride <laughs> or riding a bike. I don't know if you saw Commissioner this is just shit talking, I'm sorry. But <laughs> like Commissioner Renee Gonzalez's post where he's like, real men ride the bus, and it's like, okay. <laughs> but you know, I think everyone poses as a transit activist when they're campaigning, and then when they get in there, they don't actually do the things that they said that they were going to do because maybe it's not actually a necessity for them in the ways that it would be for some people like me. But to me, part of the reason I was excited about being here tonight, I actually told Jonathan that I had a nightmare, <laughs> that I didn't bring a notebook to write down people's feedback on the different routes and areas in this district, because I really want to hear from people first about what their experiences are on the roads and the things that they want to see, because you're experts in your own right about your experience and what you see every day. So I want to hear from you first and then develop a policy platform around transportation. I don't think that policy should be created the other way around. And I hope to do that when I continue to get into City Hall to use the platform that I have to really directly engage with constituents in a way that's never been done before. Great. Well, that's a great segue into opening it up for questions. Anybody have a question they would like to share? All right, let's pass the mic. We'll go to Lois first. I'm Lois Levine. I use she, her pronouns. I am in the district where you are running. I'm really excited to meet you. I first learned about you because my brother Larry, who is a big bike activist and pedestrian safety activist in Washington State, sent me one of your TikToks. Oh, so <laughs> it's not just local people who are listening. A couple observations and then a question. Mm -hmm. One is, Jonathan asked a misleading question. Creating this notion of fear around people who don't have stable housing, as a woman who bicycles primarily mm -hmm. as my way of getting around and is usually traveling by myself, yep. I know that what endangers me are not unhoused people. What endangers me are motor vehicles. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really easy. We've been doing a really great job of demonizing poverty mm -hmm. in Portland in the past decade. I mean, America does it well, but I would 
just want to remind folks about that. And so like when you say, what are people's concerns as cyclists? I would say that's a, the biggest one by far. Mm -hmm. And also to observe, you were talking about the importance of transit and bicycling for people who have, who cannot for economic reasons access car ownership or SUV ownership, motor vehicle ownership. Yeah. But really the cost of motor vehicles is not just the cost of purchasing them and paying for gas and repairs and insurance, right? We, we are in the climate crisis, and that cost is ginormous, and we are all collectively paying the cost, but as with many things, people who can pay their monthly bills don't see the cost of the choices they're making for themselves and their families as well as for the collective. So again, I would just, I totally get you and agree that the, the Making sure that we have safe ways for people to move around the city, regardless of their income, is really important, but not to assume that being able to pay for a motor vehicle means you can afford a motor vehicle. Now I'll actually get to a question. <laughs> I feel like there are many candidates running in this district and across districts, and I think that in most cases, probably on any policy issues, at least what they would say in campaigning would be things that I would agree with. I have also heard candidates who I was like, it's so sweet that you feel that way. I don't think you can actually get anything done. And so I would really love to hear a nitty gritty answer from you of like one example of a really tangible, here's a thing either that you helped make happen or that you would make happen, but with real detail on how it gets to be implemented. Not just this is a good idea, but how does the idea become the lived reality for Portlanders? Thank you. Did you want me to say something that I have helped to implement as an example of my capability to pass policy or specifically around transportation of what I would do now? Okay. First of all, I want to say thank you for everything that you said about uh, homeless people because as someone that's been homeless, I also agree that I think uh, we have an, a very narrow idea of who is homeless and why, and I just firmly disagree with that as well. And I appreciate pushing back on that framing. When I did constituent services at City Hall, I feel like I did actually hear a lot of that kind of framing, unfortunately, from people who biked. But that's part of why I think we need to invest in long-term changes to not pit people against each other, because they're not opposing issues, really. I think well, one of the big policies that I've been working on is Food for All Oregonians, which is a bill that is going to expand access to undocumented immigrants to use the SNAP program. And we were not able to pass it through the legislature this last session. Unfortunately, our legislators told us that there was not enough funding for it, uh, including the Democrats, who said that they really cared about undocumented immigrants. And then it turned out that the state of Oregon has billions of dollars in extra or millions of dollars in extra funding. So we're going to be pushing that campaign forward in the 2025 session. But I think the creation of the policy is what I would point to and how I would push policy, which is basically that we went to different communities and we talked to them. And so a lot of that is going to be negotiating with legislators on funding that they say is impossible, but that is actually there. So that's some of the work that I do. I also do a lot of the, frankly, behind the scenes, boring work of holding DHS accountable if they're not doing something. So, and all of that is like behind the scenes work that is just not very sexy. And when it does pass through in the next few months, because I think it will due to the work of advocates, it's all gonna be behind the scenes negotiations. 
Yeah. Thank you. Hi, my name is Roger Geller. I'm also a resident of your district. Thank you for coming here tonight. It's very nice to hear you talk about some of the efforts that you're undertaking. I really admire the policy and activist balance. I think that's really a, a powerful way to look at it. And I, your 31,000 followers, what are you hearing from them? Are they talking about specific issues? Is there a vision that you sense that, a broader vision that you sense they want, that you can represent? So that's my question. That's a great question. Yeah, the majority of my followers are local. They're either from Oregon or Portland. And I think that what I have actually seen is very different from what local media has portrayed. I think I've seen people have a deep hunger for us to take care of our neighbors in meaningful ways. And I don't say that in a cliche way. I really do mean that. I think that people are looking for, people are tired of city council being petty and having fights amongst each other and not getting the work done. People are looking for a system to create long-term housing that might be separated from profit because that's not allowing us to create affordable housing in the city of Portland. When I did talk about, I highlighted some of the work that Jonathan had done with regards to the bike lanes and how the Portland Bureau of Transportation was trying to remove those. I think there was a big outcry from the public on those issues. But mainly what I've seen is just the public being frustrated that our current city council really lacks political courage and imagination. So everything that they're doing right now is to destroy things. They're trying to destroy Portland Street response. They're trying to remove bike lanes. They're trying to prevent charter change from being implemented, right? So I think that what people are asking is for us to be bold and to just have a different vision for the city, and that's not what we're getting right now. Thank you for your question. Any other questions? Question here? Thanks for your presentation. I really enjoyed it. This is Josh Mendez. I'm also, I think I live in your district. I, in any case, I'd probably travel through your district a lot. So I'd like to hear a little bit about your ideas of how you transform, say, bus activity in the southeast. So TriMet, yeah, that's kind of, this is a tricky one because TriMet is a separate agency that the city doesn't have direct oversight over. But I would love to see maybe different ways that we could make bus drivers feel safe so that TriMet could stop having their hiring issue. Right now, we're not really even able to have enough bus drivers to get the amount of buses that we need passed in the city. And I think that could be done through like non-armed security services that go and de-escalate within transportation systems that are not carceral, are not going to be sending people to jail, but are just there to be vigilant and monitoring things. And... I just want to see changes to some basic infrastructure that I think will make people a lot more comfortable as well. I want to see bus stops have accessible bus benches that are not those leaning ones. I think if you have a disability, it's deeply uncomfortable. I know when I injured my back, that was not actually a good place to sit. I think that hostile infrastructure is hurting all of us, not just the houseless people that it's aimed at. The fact that it's going to be pouring one day and I have to wait outside in the cold next to a little pole where I sit on the bus to wait for the bus is not sufficient. So those are the kinds of things that I think I want to work with TriMet to create updates on so that the bus is a friendlier place for people to use. Anyone else? Jeff? So at Buckman Neighborhoods, Neighborhood Association meetings, anytime anything positive in the transportation system or housing system comes up, people freak out about parking. Yeah. And I was wondering how you diffuse those fears and stop them from kind of rallying against everything good. 
That's a great question. <laughs> what are you doing about it? <laughs> I actually was reading about some stuff that they're doing in Mexico to address uh, public hostility towards certain changes. And I think that they have a really different model there. So what they've done with a few different street updates is that they will do the update and then they will allow the public to just experience it and enjoy it. And then they will uh, invest the dollars in it. Um, so it's a backwards way of doing it. But I think when you show, people have a hard time imagining something if it doesn't already exist. And so when you can show them like, oh, look, this is actually making your life significantly better, then they're going to buy into it. But I think for most Americans, there's a lack of imagination of what could happen. So I, I don't know. I've been reading about how they do that in Mexico. They did it with a tolling thing. Obviously, a lot of people were against tolling, but they showed them this is the road improvement that will be paid for by through this project. And then the people didn't fight it afterwards because they were like, oh, that's great. So. I think that's one way to address some of those things. Uh, I also just think that the, the reality is that there are certain things that people are just going to have to adjust to, and we're going to have to talk to them about it. <laughs> I did constituent services when the division updates were happening, which were some of the highest pedestrian deaths in the city. And people were extremely mad that they had to take a different turn in their vehicle. And I had to explain to them, like, well, people are dying. <laughs> So unfortunately, like we do have to make a sacrifice of some inconvenience in order to improve public safety for everybody. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. You also did constituent services when Hardesty, I'm a, when Commissioner Hardesty was, a, I assume, getting a lot of emails from bike activists who were maybe not happy about the Hawthorne protected bike lane decision. Can you maybe summarize how you responded to them or how that whole conversation went? To be honest, I feel like I was mostly just getting talking points from our office and not answering super authentically. So I don't have a strong personal memory of that time. I see. I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, let, one more question. We'll get back to folks can grab Angelita on their own, bend her ear privately. We can get back to ordering drinks and food. And okay, well, last question. Here you go. Hey there. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I've been a part of like the bicycle advocacy committee. Um, and we're often told, you know, given with PBOTs like uh, funding shortfalls, um, that there are a lot of changes that often have to be made very quickly and not a lot of thought goes into them. I was wondering what sort of, like if elected, what sort of compromises or sacrifices you see yourself making in having to make a quick decision? Wait, PBOT told you that they're making quick decisions on what? There was the 33rd bike lane in which enough like advocacy and engagement wasn't done. Oh, there mm -hmm. was one other project that one other project that Jonathan reported on, and then just like on what programs were being cut or other policies that just like seemed to be made very quickly without a lot of thought. Well, I think that's just something that needs to be adjusted within the Bureau, right? Because I think like losing the bike lane on 33rd was really upsetting for no reason. And if they had just done some outreach with the neighbors, they either wouldn't have disappointed the bike advocates in the first place, or we would have all come to an agreement together about why this was a good plan. So I wouldn't adjust myself to that poor planning. I would adjust. I think the reality is that our city does have a lack of funding and budget and that a lot of people are going to throw out 
pretty utopian ideas about what can be done. Something that I really do want to focus on is improving the things that we currently have right now. Like any protections that are made for bike lanes that are currently just painted on the road, I would love to see some cement planter boxes or something added into those spaces to harden them for bike advocates. Uh, and that's not going to be a super sexy, exciting change, but it's going to be those small material differences that are going to encourage people to ride bikes in the first place. I agree. It's a great note to end on. Thank you, Angelita. I really appreciate you coming out. And thanks, everybody, for your questions and for attending. Yeah, thank you, everyone. I will be here again. That was Angelita Morillo, a candidate for City Council District Number 3. You can learn more about Angelita at angelitaforportland.com. She's also online uh, on TikTok and Instagram at at PNW, as in Pacific Northwest, PNW Policy Angel is where you can follow her and get to know her a little bit better. I hope you liked this episode. I really want to thank Angelita for coming out and spending some time with the Bike Happy Hour crowd. And also thank you for all of our Bike Portland subscribers. Your paid subscriptions are what make Bike Portland tick and what keep us around. Uh, This is community journalism that needs a community to survive. So really appreciate you. If you're not a paid subscriber yet, please become one today. You can go to bikeportland.org slash subscribe, or you can go to slash support and find out other ways to support Bike Portland. And however you can do that, I deeply, deeply appreciate it. I also want to thank Brock Dittis of Sprocket Podcast fame for our wonderful new theme music. I hope everybody's enjoying the holiday break, and I will probably next time be talking to you in 2024. So happy new year. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'll see you in the streets.